0: Everybody, it's time for another episode of It's All About Food. I'm Karen Hartglass. Thank you for joining me today. Today's topic is really close to my heart and soul. You know, we're always talking about food on this podcast and food, how it affects so many different things. I often like to talk about healthy, delicious food because it's my favorite form of activism, just showing people once you put something wonderful in their mouth, they go, Oh, I. I might be able to eat this way. But, but what really got me started a long time ago on this whole vegetarian and then vegan path was I simply didn't want to kill animals. And I had this light go on for me when I was a teenager. All of us have different stories. And over the decades, I've learned a lot. And most of it hasn't been good about exploitation and what humans do. We're going to be digging into that a lot today with Hope Bohannik, the editor of the new book, The Humane Hoax. And while we talk about the items that I'm going to bring up in the book and maybe outside of the book, I'm hoping, hope, that you add hope. So I want, I want the theme to be not just the humane hoax, but the hope we have through it all.
1: Welcome to It's All About Food, Hope Bohannik. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.
0: And I want everybody to know a little bit about you. So Hope Bohannik has been active in animal protection and environmental activism for 30 years and has published the book, The Ultimate Betrayal, Is There Happy Meat? She is the executive director of Compassionate Living and the host of the Hope for the Animals podcast. Hope co-founded the Humane Hoax Project, the Ahimsa Living Project. Over the last three decades, HOPE has worked for the national non-profits United Poultry Concerns and In Defense of Animals and has contributed chapters to two anthologies. All right, let's jump right in. You've been doing this for a long time, and I'm going to ask you this now, and I'm going to ask you this in the middle and later. How do you do it? How do you keep going? How do you keep having HOPE? HOPE. Well,
1: it is my name, (laughs) so so that's a good reminder all the time, and uh, I think my mom knew that I was going to need (laughs) that reminder uh, when she named me. You know, I I do have hope. I have come to the conclusion and come to uh, the realization that I believe that people are inherently good, compassionate, kind. I mean, that's, I think, truly our nature. Uh, I think things change when we get into groups and society and culture and all those things. Uh, but, uh, but I do have hope that we will come to the conclusion that it's just the kind thing to do to not commodify and kill animals.
0: I have hope too. I'm also very cynical.
1: <laughs> well, there's that, <laughs> there's that too. You know, that comes in with the work we do, of course.
0: Yeah. But I think, I think the only way... I can make the most out of my life is to have hope and to do what I can to try and make this world a better place. That over overused, abused statement, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> making this world a better place. Okay, let's dig into the humane hoax. What I normally do is I read a book and then I dog ear the pages that that pop out to me. There's so many wonderful chapters in here by many authors. um, Two of my favorite people, Dr. Karen Davis and my dear friend Robert Grillo, are frequented throughout here in their own chapters and also mentioned by other people in other chapters. They do wonderful work and I love them dearly and I'm glad they're on the planet. Just wanted a little shout out for them doing the difficult work. The first thing I'm going to bring up is from The Terrible Truths of Backyard Chicken Farming by Alistair Van Cleek, Ph.D., It was mentioned that one of the most common causes of death for laying hens that have been genetically manipulated so terribly in the egg industry is ovarian cancer. And it's something that I didn't know. I mean, there are so many horrible things in animal agriculture, period. But this one particularly struck me because I had advanced ovarian cancer in 2006. And I was thinking, oh my goodness, all of these poor hens are having this disease that I had. It's a vast difference because I also believe I was affected by my environment because we do live in a very toxic environment. But I had access. <laughs> I had privilege. I had doctors. I had nutrition. I had choice. I was surrounded by love. I'm thriving now, I'm happy to say. But to know that in addition to all of the cruelty that these poor Hens are experiencing beaks cut off, having their male children suffocated, having their female children go on to a similar horrible fate as they would have. But they also get to suffer one of these terrible diseases, ovarian
1: cancer. But it makes sense, I suppose. It's, it's something that people don't realize that these animals, not only the hens and egg laying, but, uh, but also uh, all the animals, they're very young. You know, when they start to get these horrible diseases, and they're, because they're killed at such a young age. So they've been so genetically manipulated that almost immediately in their life, they are getting sick, they're getting viruses, illnesses, uh, and they are, you know, living miserable lives because of that. But yeah, the ovarian cancer, other reproductive issues with hens, with the dairy cows, it comes on very quickly at an early age. And it is uh, very, very painful. They can sometimes have uh, the eggs that they're laying get um, trapped and unable to, to uh, push through. Very, very painful. And you know th- it's something that happens even on sanctuaries when the animals are rescued. Mm. Even when they're rescued and taken out of the horrible situation, their little bodies have been so manipulated that they're still you know, sick and get injured very easily. Their, their uh, legs uh, can't hold the weight of their body because they've been genetically manipulated to grow so huge. The ones that are raised for flesh, the chickens, the turkeys, pigs that are raised for their flesh, are they get so huge that their little bodies and bones can't hold their weight and they, their bones will snap. Uh, the, they get arthritis and debilitating diseases just in the first year of life, in the first few months of life, it's horrible. And this doesn't change with a a humane label or a supposedly small scale operation. Uh, And that's what my book is about, is really trying to have people understand that there are inherent cruelties that are just universal uh, within the industries, large and small, uh, that are you know pretty unavoidable, and when you're buying these humane labels, you know people are they want to do the right thing. They I, I believe, like I said in the beginning, that people do care, and they're seeking out these labels because they don't want animals to suffer. Uh, but that's where we have to educate people that the difference between a commercial operation and uh, an operation with these humane labels. Uh, cage free free range anything like that the the difference is so minimal and and there's so many horrors that they endure in their lives like what you were just talking about we were just talking about with their health issues that you know it's 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 so hard to circumvent all the cruelties and they still can live these horrible, miserable lives, go to slaughter at a very young age, no matter the label.
0: There's a thread throughout the book that has to do with people with privilege and the choices that they make, that they're able to make because they have the means. The backyard chicken farming scenario is a part of that people that care, people that want to feed their families well, who don't want to have the cruelty and the toxicity that industrial farm animals may have due to their feed and their living conditions. And because they have the means, they can have chickens in their backyard. This same chapter that I mentioned before, The Terrible Truths of Backyard Chicken Farming, was so eye-opening about all the things that can go wrong and do go wrong. And although people may be well-meaning, there is still a tremendous amount of suffering with raising chickens in your backyard. To begin with, there are the roosters. That was something that was mentioned in the book is that for every female chick, there's pretty much a male chick. And when we choose to just raise the females, the roosters are killed. I don't
1: think people even realize this. I will get asked often, well, so what's the the most humane eggs to buy or what eggs should I buy? And it's, it's, uh, it's so frustrating because from the research I have done, there is really no humane options. Not if you're buying them at a farmer's market, not if you're buying them in a health food store and not even if you are getting them from a neighbor or down the street, you don't know what the situation is. And like you said, there are so many kind of hidden uh, situations, hidden cruelties, hidden circumstances that you don't know when you are buying or obtaining an egg. And people, I think they go into, like, if someone is wanting to raise chickens for eggs, I think they go in with good intentions. I think they go in thinking, you know, that they don't want to be part of, a, of the big industrial animal farming sector, they want an alternative, they either want to, uh, you know, do, do something more humanely or environmentally better or, uh, or even just to save money. And these are all, you know, good intentions, but the reality is that these are complex animals just like any animal. They need care, they need attention, they need clean coops. It takes time and resources and money to care for animals. And people think that it's just going to be easy and just throw them out there. And that's when neglect and abuse happens. Uh, And like you said, a a, a real hidden uh, issue with this is the males, the roosters. What about the roosters? And in that chapter, Alistair Van Cleek's chapter, he says, uh, Where are their brothers? If you are seeing hens, you know, if you see a Backyard. If if someone's bought hens at the store at the at the uh, feed store, and you buy eight hens, where are their brothers? What happened to the roosters? Uh, those roosters either were killed immediately when they were born, or hmm. they sometimes get shit to the feed stores or to people's homes because they're it's hard to sex the babies, and suddenly a few weeks later some of their hens are crowing <laughs> and they realize they have roosters and in some areas like Sonoma County California that I used to live in you can have I think it was up to eight roost eight hens but no roosters. Roosters were illegal so they they get dumped people will dump them in the woods they'll dump them in you know a open barren lot or whatever these are domesticated animals. These are not wild animals. You can't just throw them out into nature and, and they're going to be fine. Uh, they are they are then you know very susceptible to predators, to disease. Uh, they get sick. They get injured. They need care. They're domesticated animals, and these roosters suffer and die, and that is a result, uh, a hidden result of the egg laying craze, of people's back having the backyard chickens and for eggs. Uh, that people just don't realize.
0: It's a thing with humans. I think naturally we want to have some sort of relationship with the other species that inhabit this planet. And as a result, if we see a movie or read a book or it's a certain holiday and we see certain publicity announcements with cute little puppies and kittens and rabbits, we want to have one. And then there are so many stories about what happens to many of these unfortunate animals when people realize, yeah, not only do they eat, but they poop and they get sick and they re- they chew up things and they make havoc with your life. And some people just don't wanna deal with that. And because these animals are not given the respect and the dignity that I think they deserve, many people just throw them out in one way or another. So on this thread of of privilege, And the ability to think that we're acting in a good way, but not realizing all of the repercussions. And when we have the means, we can do some things. In another chapter, Murder, She Wrote by John Sanbon Matsu, PhD, there's this discussion about the femivore. And this was another one that popped out to me because in my decades of reading about, about veganism and about animal rights and all of these things we talk about health we talk about environment we talk about the cruelty to animals but there there's a lot more going on and here's a case where as it's presented in this chapter there are women who have careers some of them are doing quite well and yet they feel this emptiness or this need to do something else and they decide to become stewards of livestock. Some of them get into hunting, some of them get into raising animals so that they can slaughter them and eat them. And according to this chapter, they get a lot of satisfaction from it. And I'll tell you, I got chills reading this whole chapter because I want to believe, especially with women, that we are helping the human species evolve. And we're bringing humanity to a kinder, compassionate, gentler place. But in this situation, the women want to be more like the men that are in power and, and be able to have some sort of control. And so they find that they can control the animals that they're raising. This was a very, very chilling chapter.
1: Yeah, I, I it's that chapter... So it's called "Murder She Wrote," legitimating the meat economy with femivorism, and that author was John Sanbonmatsu. He's a professor of philosophy, and it's it's so well written. It's actually really humorous. Uh, it's a it's a fun read, uh, but still very very disturbing. And that it, it, it's so the femivore, what he's talking about, the femivore that that word was dubbed by the New York Times. Mm talking about these women who are leaving corporate America, leaving big cities, buying a farm, and then basically (laughs) uh, farming, hunting, uh, butchering animals, and in some form of uh, empowerment, right, in some kind of empowerment, and it's really, really fascinating. It's kind of like a um, kind of a, a instead of uh, wanting to unseat the patriarchy, they want a seat at the table, as uh, John says. In fact, I'll I'll read a a quote from the chapter that's just really, really wonderful. For today's femivores, as the New York Times has dubbed, dubbed these scores of women who have flocked to farming, hunting, and butchery as a way to achieve a sense of empowerment Nothing could be more repugnant than the musty feminism of their predecessors with the specter of the angry activist clutching her dog-eared moosewood cookbook. It, it's, it's really fascinating. He says uh, they want to lean in and they want their grass-fed steaks lean too. So it's, it's really fascinating. But, but what I find really disturbing about all this is the way that they are mothering these animals or, or using kind of a very maternal... Uh, care. So they're equating animal husbandry and caretaking of children with caring for animals. But what's disturbing about that is that, you know, what's the end result here? In just a few short months, they're going to be killing these animals or sending them to be killed. It's such a cognitive dissonance. Uh, It it, it goes beyond just kind of the, the random meat eater on the street, right? It's this kind of um, very bizarre psychology, uh, it's betrayal. And it's actually what I called my first book, why I called my first book uh, on this subject of humane washing, the ultimate betrayal. Because farmers will, will say they care, pretend that they care, saying that they're, and I don't think they're pretending. I think they do on some level feel that they care and they are treating these animals like family but then they're slitting their throats. Would you, you know, would you kill a family member? Would you kill your child? It's really bizarre. And I believe that this is where speciesism comes in. You know, we really need to recognize that these are sentient beings. They do need care. They do need attention. They do need maternal nurturing, but then we shouldn't betray them by killing them, right? In such a brutal manner, at taking their life. It's it's just bizarre. And th- this is I-, I love this chapter because there's a lot of storytelling, and I think that's why these books are very popular, is that they're, you know, telling the story of being on the farm and all of this. Storytelling is really important and really compelling, and that's why I put stories all through this book. Mm-hmm. I have two stories in my chapter uh, that I felt were really poignant to tell. And I start the book off with two, two, two chapters that have wonderful, kind of sad and poignant stories about individual animals that are victims of the humane hoax. Uh, and I and I knew it was kind of a risk to put those two kind of sad stories right up front in the mm. book. I could have started with more general information and maybe stats and you know lay, stuff about the labels to kind of ease people in. But but this book, it's about the animals, right? The real animals that are suffering because of the humane hoax, because of the labels. And I wanted to establish that right away. I wanted stories that would that would entice people to care, that would make them understand why they should care. And it's because these animals are individuals, sentient individuals. Uh, and that's what's missing with this, this Femivore narrative, right? And, and also with any uh, animal product. And that's why I put those two chapters right up front with those powerful stories.
0: But, yeah, yeah, stories are very important and I appreciated them. And people relate mostly to stories than facts and figures, but the facts and figures are also very important because oh, yeah. they're eye popping and like, oh my God, so you know, such a big percentage of this and that and so many of this and that. But this femivore thing is creepy. It's just—it's not just crazy. It's creepy. I don't have any children. I chose not to have children, and some people choose to have children, and and we have wonderful parents on the planet, and then we have abusive parents. We have all kinds of things. But this raising of non-human animals and comparing it to raising a human baby, and then killing the animal, and knowing the whole time you're going to kill this animal—that's creepy. And we've done this on numerous different levels. levels. We've done it with humans when it comes to slavery, the way we'll treat the slave and assume different things about them, but they're not as good as the master and the master's family. So they, they don't need to be treated. Certainly they don't need the same things. And ultimately in the end, you're exploiting them. You may or may not kill them. <laughs> it's a different option. A different topic, but a little similar is when we breed animals, especially dogs, for our companion animals, I know some people that like to train their dogs and put them in competitions, and they care deeply for these animals. But is this what the dogs really want to do? Do they really want to be racing and jumping through hoops and and doing whatever they've been trained to do? I don't really know. I'm not in their head. But what I do know is that some people have a need to control and have whoever it is do their bidding. And it could be an adorable little animal that's going to jump through hoops for them, or it could be an adorable little animal that's going to grow up a little bit, and then they cut their throat and put them on their plate. It's all pretty creepy. Okay, let's go to Molly Katzen, the author of the Moosewood Cookbook, which decades ago was like one of the few vegetarian cookbooks out there. And I have... My copy, I'm turning in the back to all my cookbooks. It was groundbreaking at the time. And in Ithaca, there's the Moosewood restaurant, which went up for sale not too long ago. I'm not sure how that came out. You share in your book that Molly Katzen occasionally eats a little meat now. I'm not going to make any judgments. I don't know who she is and why she does what she does, but it's always a little disappointing when some of our leaders that we hold in great esteem make a choice that we may not support. And it was disappointing to read that. There are some people that are on a vegetarian path, a vegan path, and then as they age and maybe don't feel as good, they're told by their doctors and nutritionists that they need a little animal product in their diet. Again, I'm not a medical doctor, so I cannot comment, but I get frustrated when I hear those things. That's my moosewood commentary. You have a a section called, What is Really Extreme?, And this really popped out to me because I talked about the word extreme many times. I think it was back 15, 16 years ago, I was interviewed on Geraldo at Large on Fox News. And it was because some article came out about vegans who wouldn't date meat eaters. So they wanted to talk to a vegan about this subject. It was an amusing little interview. And I said a lot of things that, of course, were cut. But there was one thing that they didn't cut. And I enjoy coming back and, and being reminded of it. But the question was, isn't this way of eating vegan extreme? And I said, I think meat eating is extreme. (laughs) And they kept it in there. (laughs) I'm sincere about that. If we really think about meat eating, it's sci-fi. It's, (laughs) it's B-movie sci-fi. It's insane. It's creepy. Dystopian. 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 Thank you. Mm Can we talk a little bit about this concept of extreme?
1: Yeah. In my chapter, I have a section about this. And this, you know, as vegans, we have heard this argument uh, that it's too extreme. Oh, going vegan's too extreme. And what I, I've always thought that, you know, why is suddenly being extreme being equated with being bad, right? It's kind of this, this faulty pr- premise that being extreme is always bad. But don't we want to be extremely kind, extremely hmm. intelligent, extremely clever, right? There's a lot of ways that you can be extreme in good ways. <laughs> and, and I believe that, that veganism, being vegan, is just being extremely compassionate. Hmm. Why is that bad? Uh, but how this relates to the humane hoax So what the humane hoax offers, what humane labels offer, is a way for people to not have to go to the extremes of veganism and they can find kind of this seemingly middle ground option, a more acceptable solution of choosing humane, humanely labeled and humanely uh, marketed meat, dairy, and eggs. And that way they can still eat what they like, pay a little more maybe, and not be labeled as extreme. Yeah, but again, I, I, I just really believe that being extremely kind, extremely compassionate, it's not a bad thing. We need some extreme compassion in the world right now. Yes, we <laughs> right? do. Yeah, absolutely. So I, this is such a frustrating uh, you know, argument But it it also, it's just this middle ground thing about the humane labels is really interesting. And I think that the cage-free label is really one that could be examined in this way. And, you know, activists, we've done a wonderful job. Vegans have done a really good job of exposing some of the worst farmed animal abuses uh, that are happening on this planet, the horrors of egg-laying hens that are languishing in battery cages and the cages that that are that they are in you know they're stacked on top of each other they're crammed into these cages it's basically like living your whole life in a crowded elevator if you could imagine how just distressing and, and disturbing and horrible that would be and so and this is arguably one of the worst things in uh in animal agriculture so the industry has now responded right they're mm the story, they're changing the label, they're changing consumers' conceptions. And instead of of not eating eggs, going to the extreme of not eating eggs, shoppers are now given a choice, right? A seemingly humane alternative of cage-free eggs. But the reality for the birds, it's so minimal, the change. It's still a very stark, miserable existence in these overcrowded buildings floor systems with thousands of birds waste burning their eyes and throats never feeling the sun on their wings they still go to a brutal slaughter at a very young age and there are studies that show that there's higher mortality rates in cage free farming i have witnessed and seen cage free operations uh, after researching my first book the ultimate betrayal that just shocked me how how what a horrible living condition these cage free and free range birds lived in so you know, and, and of course it's absolutely true that it's good to get the birds out of the cages. I, I think we can all agree. Let's absolutely, let's get the birds out of the cages. Any modicum of improvement is better than nothing. Absolutely. But what, what happens is that all the welfare issues and concerns for hens that are bred for egg laying get funneled through this one thing, the cage that's now seemingly resolved when you buy cage-free eggs, right? The perception of the cage-free label is that, oh, the birds are happy now, they're living a good life. And all the other horrors that they face are not acknowledged. And so so the label is misleading. From the beginning of their lives to the end, there are cruelties beyond the cage. And now that's with this cage-free label, those cruelties are hidden people think they're living a great stress-free life, and that is far from the truth. So that's why I compiled this book. That's why I compiled these essays to educate about these labels, what they truly mean, and that it is not extreme to, uh, to live vegan, to live compassionately, to live egg-free without eggs. We don't need them in our lives. I have lived without eggs now for 33 years. I'm healthy and thriving. It's unnecessary. And uh, yeah, I think that let's be extremely compassionate and live a vegan life. We need extreme
0: action. We need extreme truth. And it's mentioned in the book, Where people are really lulled into feeling like they're doing okay by these labels and the labels aren't telling them the truth. They really want to do well. You know, I was just involved with the annual Food Revolution Summit with John and Ocean Robbins, and I participate by answering people's health questions while the interviews are going on. And over and over again, people are getting the message, they're learning that consuming animal products aren't really good for them. And they keep asking, what about organic what about cage-free are turkeys the same as chickens because they really want to they want to be, have their cake and eat it too they want to have their animal their humanely raised grass-fed cage-free animal and eat it too and you can't
1: yeah and people that and that's why again why i compiled this book is that, you know, people don't realize that there are inherent cruelties that you just cannot, to make a product profitable, to make an animal product profitable, there's inherent cruelties in meat, dairy, and egg production that just you can't circumvent, even if they want to, even if they wanted to be more humane, they just can't to compete and be profitable. Body mutilations, separation of families, slaughter at a young age, all of these things are inherent to the industry, and you know, and that's why they focus on things that they can do, like getting the birds out of the cages, and they put funnel it through a lens that that everything's fine now because their confinement sizes is, is larger, uh, but people don't know about all the other things that are involved, and you know, the, the consumer sees the humane label and thinks that the animal is now uh, free of suffering. A, a good example of this is actually organic dairy. Mm. And, and I start my chapter with this example uh, because I think it's really important. Because you know, when I when I first started doing this research and looking into this 15 years ago, I thought that I was going to be saying things like, "Well, you know, free range is better, but going vegan is best," or "Organics better, but going vegan's best." That's not what I found. Both environmentally and uh, and ethically, on different levels with different labels, but with organic dairy. So on dairy farms, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult for these uh, dairy cows. Ha- they have to be kept pregnant, of course, because they only lactate, give milk when they are pregnant. And these babies are taken away from them right at birth. There's psychological trauma around that. They're in dirty conditions. They're moved around there. You know, it's, it's very stressful, very stressful life for these dairy cows. And so they get sick. And they get infections and and viruses. And something that they often have is mastitis. It's an infection of the udder where their udder can swell. They can have open sores, pus, very painful for them to be milked. And what a a commercial farm, a regular uh, farm will do is they will give those cows that are exhibiting mastitis, they'll give them antibiotics, pharmaceuticals that will relieve the the infection. Well, in organic production, they are not allowed to give them the pharmaceuticals, the the medications, because that would be passed into the milk. And mostly the label is for the health of humans uh, to not have those kinds of pharmaceuticals going into the milk. So instead of taking her out of production and not selling her milk and letting her heal, they just let it go. They there, I had a veterinarian confide in me that he was seeing cows with some of the worst cases of mastitis, very painful when they were being milked, on organic farms. Mm-hmm. Like, like he hadn't seen in decades on, re, on conventional farming, uh, because they were not giving these cows the medications they need to clear up these infections and illnesses. So here's a situation where this organic label and, you know, in the organic label, I'll say it is one of the better labels. It is one of the only labels that we talk about that has, you know, on-site inspection of the farm and some, some pretty rigorous oversight. But as far as the humane treatment of the animals, there's so many aspects that are not taken into account. And this is one of those. And so now animals are suffering even mm-hmm. more in organic production.
0: Organic does not mean humane. Organic does not mean compassion, unless unless we start to redefine what humane means, because it's used in all
1: kinds of ways. Well, and that's that, what's yeah.
0: Yeah, because humane doesn't mean nice to me anymore. Yeah. So there's a lot of things to learn in this book, a lot of things to read about. And I just wanted to mention a few others really quickly, like greenwashing, honey, and beekeeping. I remember talking with Jonathan Balcombe and reading his book, Superfly, and learning about all the things that flies can do. And one of the things that they do is pollinate, and they don't get the press for it. Bees only get the press for pollinating. But there are many varieties of insects that do all kinds of things in nature for us. The way we manage agriculture today is we are minimizing or reducing biodiversity that is so necessary. So read, you can read all about that. I loved a quote that was included in A Fox Guarding the Hen House by Upton Sinclair. It is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends upon his not
1: understanding. Upton Sinclair did not write a chapter in the book that he was, it was a quote. in the oh. chapter. Yeah, I just wanted to clarify that.
0: <laughs> that would have been nice to have had Upton yeah. <laughs> write a chapter in your book, but he is not with us in the oh, form right. that we phys- <laughs> As we know at this time, <laughs> he wrote The Jungle a long time ago and was responsible for motivating our government to make a few better laws about raising animals for food with respect and to uh, again,
1: sanitary was, things. Yeah, again, it was more around the health of people. Yeah, uh, not animals. And not, and not necessarily the, the human treatment of animals. Yeah.
0: But so true that Even caring people will make very difficult, uh, almost evil choices when it comes to bringing home their own paycheck. And then you mentioned Terry Gross in The Humane Myths and Media by Lisa A. Barca, PhD. Uh, And you included little clips of an interview that was done on fresh air. And everybody loves Terry Gross for her luscious voice she does have a wonderful sounding speaking voice. And it's a funny thing. I don't know if you've noticed this too, but I used to listen to Terry Gross a lot decades ago when I was driving wherever to work. I had lived in California. I drove a lot and NPR was on the radio all the time. And then years later, when I started my own podcast and started interviewing, and then I would listen to Terry Gross. She's a wonderful interviewer, but I was finding that wasn't always asking the questions that I would have liked to have been asked. In this particular chapter, she asks the question, and what do you consider to be a humane approach to slaughtering a chicken? After getting the answers that she got, she didn't continue to ask the real questions that need to be asked. And probably she doesn't even think about them because we only see the world the way we want to see it or the way we see it. And if you're not a vegan or you're not considering the sentience of an, other animals, then I guess you don't think of the questions concerning that subject.
1: That was a really interesting chapter uh, by Lisa Barca uh, that is around uh, the media, media and journalism and how they portray the humane hoax and how they prop up the humane hoax and kind of romanticize the humane hoax. Uh, it's it's really interesting. She uses three examples from, uh, but there's so many more examples of how journalists uh, and media they i think i think a lot of times they're really looking for feel good stories you know there's so much dire distressing things happening so they're looking for that feel good story and this supposedly new way of farming kind of offers that right and so yeah. latch on to these Uh, humane farm stories, but also too, as Lisa points out in her chapter, you have to look at the advertising as well. I mean, so much of the advertising dollars that are, that's going to media is from the meat and dairy sector. So, you know, you'll, you'll find that, but, uh, but yeah, that that was a really wonderful chapter, really well written by Lisa Barca um, and, and a fascinating subject that And I'm actually going to have her on my podcast in May, on the, mm, the animals podcast, we're going to be kind of unpacking and digging in to her chapter. So uh, so you can really hear from Lisa and about that chapter on the hope for the animals podcast.
0: Well, do you think that the journalists are censoring themselves because of the sponsors? Or are they just ignorant? Or maybe a little
1: of both? I would say a little of both. I think that yeah, I, you know. And and when we're seeing when, when when we're bombarded with advertising around meat, dairy and eggs, which we so are. And and it, it, it's so funny to me when people say, "Well, don't don't indoctrinate me or don't indoctrinate my children with vegan messaging," right? <laughs> and, and, and you look around and everywhere you look, everywhere you glance, there's huge advertisement for, for meat and for fast food and all of that, and you know that's the true indoctrination. I mean, that's really what is being uh, fed to us. So, so the, you know, I think the journalists are just are just part of that. They are part of this mainstreaming of meat, dairy, and eggs. And you know, the little bit of vegan messaging that gets peppered in, you know, <laughs> it's 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 so little, but. But really, what's the motivation behind the vegan message? What is our motivation as vegan educators, right? A compassionate world, a, a healthy world, a, 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 to reverse climate change and all of that. What is the, the, the motivation of the marketers to make more money, to, to prop up their stockholders bottom line, right? So- <laughs> Who's the true indoctrination? <laughs> I mean, what's what's truly uh, the the compassionate message or the the, the truth, uh, and that's what people need to really examine.
0: I read the New York Times, and it's not a bad newspaper, but it's not perfect like everything. And when it comes to their information on food, I always feel that they fall short. And there was an article recently, I think it was like 10 myths of nutrition or something like that. I forget the title, but they listed 10 different things, myths. And one of them was great. It was how it talked about complete protein. And I'm always screaming when people say, you know, where do you get your protein and how do you make it complete? And then I have to say, all plant food contains all the nine essential amino acids. They're complete. Forget about it. And that was in there and that was correct. And then another one was, uh, can you eat too much fruit or something like that, specifically with diabetics? And they were saying diabetics can eat whole fruit. It's a good thing. And that was great. But the one that was, oh, was no, was comparing plant milks with dairy milk and saying that dairy milk is more nutritious. There was just so much that wasn't there. But what was there was sponsor, (laughs) sponsor. sponsored by a,
1: a dairy industry? or
0: Well, I, I'm just assuming the New York Times has sponsors from oh. the dairy industry. You know, New York's a big dairy state and who knows? We can't disappoint our, our dairy people. But it wasn't true. And it's not just the nutrients that are in milk, but it's the other things that are in milk. Like we don't want cholesterol. We don't want pain and suffering. We don't want antibiotics and hormones. We don't want hormones, Honor Killing by Kojin Bohanick, PhD, your husband. How nice is it to have a partner to work with and share thoughts and frustrations? I would like to eavesdrop some time on some of your conversations about this movement that we're in.
1: Yeah, it was, it was wonderful that my husband was able to contribute a chapter, Dr. Kojin Bohanick. Uh, He is a a Sanskritist, a Dharma uh, teacher. He teaches the uh, um, comparative Dharma religions. He has his uh, master's in Buddhism and his PhD in Hinduism. And his chapter, so he's a theologian. So his chapter was about how do-it-yourself slaughterers, and we're, we're seeing this more and more now where there are actually workshops and classes that you can go to, to learn how to slaughter animals. Uh, And this has become kind of a niche uh, uh, area around, you know, locavore and do it yourself and kind of uh, back to, you know, self-reliance kind of ethos that a lot of people are exploring. And they will Go to classes about slaughtering animals and oftentimes people that are writing about this people that are teaching these classes things like that they will have this kind of flowery language that is borders on spiritual like they they say things like oh well we honor the animal and we're you know gonna gonna really pray for the animal's soul and spirit and things like that and oh, it's it's really uh, just very problematic. Uh, And as his chapter gets into, this is what Kojin wrote about, is about this um, spiritual bypass is what it's called, when you use spirituality to, uh, to justify bad behavior and to justify problematic and hurtful things and it's a you know true psychological condition using spiritual bypass and that's what is being done in these situations where people are slaughtering their own animals and you know and i and i think what this stems from is that we know something is wrong with this we know this isn't isn't right it is not a good thing to kill an animal and so you know we have to somehow wrap it in this language of, uh, you know, of, of, of appeasing ourselves and making ourselves feel better and feel less horrible about what is truly going on is that we are taking the life of a young sentient being that wants to live. And I think we know inherently, we know deeply that, that that's not right. Something's wrong with that. But we've been taught this lie, this, this myth that we must have meat. Mm-hmm. And we think that we have to have it in our diet. We think it's the only way to be healthy, and it's just not true. You and I and the other decades-long vegans are living proof that we don't need meat or dairy or eggs in our diet. But so people are trying to, you know, trying to circumvent the 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 industrial, uh, and trying to find other ways to do this. That's what this humane hoax is all about. And you know, it's just trying to find the right way to do the wrong thing, and there is no right way to do the wrong thing. And we should never ever take the life of an innocent being that wants to live. And so we try to wrap it in this language uh, that you know is is uh, is false and uh, and and portrays a false narrative. And and that's really, language is a huge part of this. And there, and I have a whole section in the book called Language and Labels, or Labels and Language, I believe. That, it, it's so important. We are definitely corrupting the language of animal welfare, like we've kind of been talking about. And there's a great quote, I'll, I'll read a quote from David uh, Devanatha's, uh, Devanatha's uh, chapter, Devanatha Nair uh, wrote a chapter, and she wrote, quote, It is also the crafty use of language in stories that we tell ourselves that Hmm. allow us to fawn over the animals at the zoo and still be able to consume other animals a few moments later for lunch without raising too many existential qualms. So just interesting stuff about language uh, and humane washing.
0: So we just have a few minutes left, and I want to hear the hopeful side of
1: the humane hoax. Yeah, there's, there's definitely a hopeful side. You know, why do people seek out these labels? It's because they care. I really believe, like I said in the beginning, that people do care about animals. They don't want to see them suffer. And so that, that's why they're seeking out these labels. That's why these labels are popular and selling, right? But I think that this is just kind of a stage we're going to have to go through to get to where we're going because the logical progression, the logical conclusion, of treating animals humanely, giving them a good life is that we don't kill them. You know, I believe we will get there, but we have to, we can't be complacent. We have to, uh, to help people. We don't, can't assume they're going to get there on their own because the marketing and the labels are not telling them the truth, right? So we have to be that voice of truth. We have to tell them about the animal stories, anytime that animals are commodified, exploited, abused, in these labels, with these labels, and that's going to be you know part of this progression. But I really believe that the logical conclusion of the humane labeling is that we don't hurt or kill animals. That is just the logical conclusion. That's where we're going, and I believe that people care, they're concerned, they love, and have compassion. And so I really believe that eventually we will see an end to all animal farming and suffering. We just have to reach those people. We just have to explain and educate on this issue. So uh, so yeah, we'll we'll get there, I believe.
0: Okay, we're going to get there. I can't wait. I hope I see. Well, I'm seeing a lot of it already. But I would like to see it all wrap up. (laughs) But I don't know that I will. We're all living these lovely, non-exploitive lives, caring and compassionate. And let's redefine what humane means. Let's make it what we want it to be. What it truly should be. What it truly
1: should be. Exactly.
0: Hope, I understand you would like to share a few other things before we go.
1: Well, yeah, I would love to share with everyone uh, a couple of projects that I have connected to this book is the Humane Hoax project and it's humanehoax.org. So we have a larger project around it with a volunteer team. We have webinars, we have events Mm. that happen. We have our Humane Hoax online conference and a specific chicken webinar, one of the only webinars specific to chickens, the Humane Hoax chicken webinar. And so you can get all the information on the Humane Hoax uh, website, humanehoax.org about those events. We have one coming up and also Uh, compassionate living is the sponsor of this book all the proceeds are going to the nonprofit my nonprofit compassionate living so you can go there and check out what we have going on we have a lot of projects and events coming up as well so uh, so yeah just you know a lot of stuff beyond the book so compassionate living and the humane hoax project and also my podcast the hope for the animals podcast
0: Okay, I'll include links to all of those things in the post for this particular program. Thank you. All right. Well, again, it was a great pleasure and honor to speak with you today. All right. Everybody run out and get the Humane Hoax Essays Exposing the Myth of Happy Meat, Humane Dairy, and Ethical Eggs with the editor, Hope Bohannock. I'm always looking for things that give me hope in addition to everything that we just talked about regarding the humane hoax and all the things that hope is hopeful about. I get a lot of hope from the neighborhood that I live in. I'm very fortunate to live in New York City, but one of the wonderful things that we have here, in addition to a lot of people and music and arts, I call it a playground, we have some fantastic vegan restaurants. About three weeks ago, it was my birthday Some of you may remember my birthday is on Earth Day, April 22nd, and I like to treat myself during a period around my birthday. And as a result, my partner Gary and I have visited a lot of the wonderful vegan restaurants that New York City has to offer. And when you just see the variety where you can get vegan American food, whatever that is, and then all different kinds of Asian food, vegan Asian food. That means vegan Korean, vegan Chinese, vegan Japanese, vegan Indian. It's all right here, and it's all wonderful, and it's all delicious. And there are more and more vegan fast food places. I don't really care to frequent them, but I'm glad they're here. A lot of them like to serve in Paper plates or plastic. I'm assuming a lot of them are using more environmentally friendly, disposable plates and utensils. But still, they're throwaway, and I don't enjoy that. But I'm glad they're serving animal-free, cruelty-free food, and a lot of it is really amazing. Just to name a few, Peace Food in the Upper West Side, as well as it's just below Union Square Park on 11th Street. One of my favorites is vegan Chinese cuisine, and we have a bunch of great restaurants. The one that I frequent is Bodai Kosher Vegetarian on Mulberry Street in Chinatown. Not only do they have a vast array of dishes, but they have dim sum, which is tremendous fun. There's also vegan Korean at Hangawi and Francia. I love them both. Very creative food. And there's always new restaurants that are popping up that I... I can't even keep track of. We have a new Mediterranean restaurant called the Nixie that I have yet to go to. But if you go online and you look at their menu, it's amazing. The creativity is nothing short of amazing. And I'm just talking about Manhattan. But in the other boroughs, especially Brooklyn, there are more vegan restaurants popping up. It's really a delight to be able to have so many choices. I am filled with gratitude and hope. I've mentioned this before, but happycow.net is a great website to visit when you're looking for food in a neighborhood you're not familiar with that will either have a vegan restaurant or more than one or vegetarian or the very minimum vegan options. It's the best site that I've found to help you no matter where you are on the planet. We recently visited Riverdale Cheese Shop, and I can't talk about them enough because it just blew my mind to be there, but they're in this space called Essex Market, which is the Lower East Side of Manhattan. It's a space that has a European flavor. It's a big warehouse, and inside they have different vendors with all different kinds of food. Very little of it is vegan, but many of them boast vegan options. And again, this gives me hope, but they have Riverdale, a cheese shop that we were familiar with in Brooklyn that moved to Manhattan and it's just it's just a thrill to be able to see the craft that goes into people from all over the world making cheese from plant milks that gives me hope and they're delicious now it's not something that I'm going to eat a lot of because they're high in fat salt but in small bites they're really lovely and I'm excited that they're available for all of us. Thank you for joining me on this episode of It's All About Food. I'm Karen Hartgloss. You can find me at responsibleeatingandliving.com. Send me comments and questions to my email address, info at Thank you once again for joining me, and everybody, have a delicious week.